right, hello everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Heart of Flesh podcast. Uh, today we're going to be talking about another attribute of God's word. Um, probably the last one. Yeah, probably the last one. And then we're going to go into some some conversations about how to read the Bible, how to study the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll probably have that coming up next. I don't know when our next episode is going to be. Yeah. Uh, this coming week, I will be speaking at a at a at a high school Bible camp. Um, and also preaching at uh, River City Church, the church Joshua and I go to. Um, August 7th, right? Yeah, August 7th, that same Sunday. And Joshua is going to be doing the week after me. Yeah. Uh, and neither of us have ever done that before. Um, actually preached a sermon in front of a, a congregation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're both very excited and um, slightly terrified. Yeah. Uh, a, li- a little bit anxious to do that. Um, but... With that said, it just might <coughs> it might be a little bit um, before we get out another episode after this, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so today we're going to be talking about uh, the last characteristic of Scripture we want to talk about. Um, we've talked about how God's Word is authoritative, um, that it is the Word of God, that, <coughs> that God is speaking through men in His Word, that it has divine authority. We've talked about how the Word of God is clear, uh, the, the clarity of Scripture. That, that what we need to know uh, from Scripture uh, for, for purposes of salvation is, is plainly taught, mm-hmm. that the educated uh, and the uneducated can understand it with, with uh, as the confession puts it, the due use of ordinary means, right? Um, we've also talked about the role of God's Word in our lives. We talked about how it forms the foundation of our lives, that it's the foundation for knowledge, truth, um, and the purpose that it's supposed to play in our lives. We talked a lot about Deuteronomy 6, you know, it says, you know, this this word that I've commanded you today shall be in your heart. You talk about it when you go to bed, when you rise, meditate on it day and night. Psalm 1 talks about that. Joshua 1. Um, so th- those are a few attributes of God's word. The last one that we want to talk about today is, is the sufficiency of Scripture. Mm. The sufficiency of Scripture. We believe that Scripture is sufficient. That, that the revelation of God, the canon that we have today is sufficient. Um, we don't need something more. We don't need more revelation of God. We don't need to go out the outside the Bible to find certain answers to certain questions. Um, we're, we, we're probably going to talk a little bit, a little bit too, about uh, traditions and, and, and laws. Uh, wh- what what do we need to obey to obey God? Do we need to obey things outside the Bible, or do we need to obey things inside the Bible? <coughs> um, hopefully, we're going to get to the question of whether or not we should expect any new revelation from God, uh, things like that. So when we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, um, the, the definition we're going to give from it, we're, we're going to take it from Wayne Grudem once again. Um, a lot of our, a lot of our, some of our material and, and a lot of our uh, kind of just just how we're going about this, wh- what we're doing structure. is we are, our structure, we are pulling a lot from, from Wayne Grudem's systematic theology book. Mm-hmm. <coughs> so if you're a if you're a new Christian and you're interested in, in learning Christian doctrine, uh, which of course we say yes, you should be, mm-hmm. um, some sort of systematic theology would be a really good place to go. Grudem, Wayne Grudem writes one that's pretty simple, it's pretty easy to comprehend and understand, and essentially the the purpose of doing systematic theology is that um, the the Bible teaches about many different doctrines and many different topics, and when you can you can find 
the teachings that the Bible has about those topics, you can systemi- systematize them, you can bring them together, and you can understand and form doctrines, mm-hmm. you know, such as the, the, the doctrine of the atonement. You can look at everything that the Bible says about the doctrine of the atonement, and you can make conclusions from that about what the atonement is, how it operates, um, things like that. It forms doctrines. Mm-hmm. So we are taking our definition here from Wayne Grudem, and we are encouraging uh, if you guys are interested in learning more, then then give his book a read. It's kind of a, a thick, a rather thick book, but I think it's definitely well worth a read. Yep. So the definition that he gives is he says that the sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contained all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history, and that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and obeying him perfectly. Okay, so we're going to get into a little bit of what that means. First of all, um, what does it mean that the words of the Scripture contain all the words of God He intended His people to have at each stage of redemptive history? Uh, to explain that, first of all, the the revelation of God generally comes in large part around major redemptive historical events. So the the Exodus, the entrance into the Promised Land. Um, you have the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, mm-hmm. uh, and much scripture that follows that. God generally speaks um, a great deal around major redemptive historical events. <coughs> and as the Bible was, you know, we've talked about this before, the Bible did not come about drop from the sky, uh, but it was progressively given from God through men, through normal, ordinary, historical means, Um and in progressed through history, it was written. It was written over a period of time for about fifteen hundred years. So, so what what happens was was God takes initiative to reveal Himself through His Word. He speaks through men to do it. Um, and at each stage, God God gave revelation um, sufficient enough for His people at the time. Right? God gave revelation. Sufficient enough for his people at the time. And we uh, today we would say we have a closed canon. We're going to talk about that a little bit um, as we get into this. Uh, but a- as we understand the sufficiency of Scripture, um, one thing that we, we're going to look at is there, there are many, several commands in Scripture that we are not to add to the Word of God. So Moses, after the Exodus, is, is speaking to the people. He's writing down the words of God and... and what he commands is that, and God through him says that no one is to add to this word, right? Um, we So after Moses has done the writing of the Pentateuch, we'd say that that was sufficient at that time for those people. Um, but God has continued to reveal things. Um, Moses said that, that humans were not to add to this word at this time. And what that essentially means is that humans are not allowed to take initiative on their own to proclaim by themselves the word of God, but later as God continues to reveal himself, he continues to to command his people to speak his word and to record it and to preserve it, right? Um, so, so for example, this this we're going to look at a few of these passages that talk about God's command not to add anything to his word. The first one is Deuteronomy 4.2. It says, um, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. So what God has commanded, you are neither to add nor to take away of it. There's something very similar in Deuteronomy 12, 32. I'm going to turn there really quick. 
Deuteronomy 12.32, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. What God has revealed is sufficient. There is no need to add to it or to take away from it. Proverbs 35-6 through six gives us a, a, a similar example. It says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. I think contextually in Deuteronomy, the two Deuteronomy four and twelve, I think that was specific to the the um, the commandments, the the law that was given at Sinai to you. Um, right. Just contextually there. Right. So so the law was given through Moses, and, and the command is obey these laws. Do not add to these laws. Mm-hmm. Right. Do not add Which to the these Ju- commandments. The Jews did. Right. Uh, after that, they added a bunch. Right. And and we'll talk about some of that and how how Jesus rebukes. Pharisees who had added to the word of God. Um, we are we are going to touch on that. The last one is we see another example of this at the very end of the Bible. Revelation 22, uh, verse 18, verse 18 and 19, it says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city. Right. So the command throughout the Bible is do not add or take away from this book. Do not add or take away. The words of God are sufficient. Um, They are all that we need. Right. God has specifically given us these words. He has specifically given us these words. And and there are a few instances in the Bible where God does rebuke um, those who would add to his word. And the one example, we already talked about this a little bit, but Mark 7 Jesus is is interacting with the Pharisees. There's a lot of that in the Gospels. He's very critical of them. Uh, They are the religious elites of the day, and Jesus um, is very critical of them, the way that they've handled the Word of God. They were responsible for teaching the Word of God, and they very much maligned the Word of God by what they taught. Um, And and when we look at Mark 7, verse 5, it says, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? but eat with defiled hands. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. So Jesus goes back and, and, he, and he points to the prophet Isaiah, and he quotes from him. And it says, from Isaiah, it says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then Jesus continues in verse 8, he says, You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So the, the background of this of this context, Jesus, uh, his, his disciples, um, what, what they were doing is that they they were eating and they would not wash their hands properly before they, before they ate, right? And the Pharisees, had this tradition and this rule, um, a, a man-made tradition of the elders that you were to properly wash your hands in a certain way before you were able to eat, right? Nowhere is that commanded in God's word, um, but the Pharisees were trying to author- authoritatively assert that upon people and to question Jesus and his disciples and why they didn't do this. And Jesus rebukes them. Essentially what they're doing is they're they're violating the curse of Deuteronomy 4.12. They are adding to God's law. Mm-hmm. They, are, they are trying to add to God's law um, 
by teaching doctrines of men and not commandments of God, mm-hmm. right? So, <coughs> for our understanding of of how are we to know God, how are we to obey God, all we need is the scriptures. The scriptures teach mm-hmm. us clearly if, if something is not in the scripture, God has not put it there. Mm-hmm. It is not something that we need to specifically obey. Mm-hmm. So a tradition like the Pharisees in their case of properly washing hands before a meal, that's nowhere in the Bible. And Jesus tells them um, or or rebukes them for trying to add that as a law that was not there, right? Another example of people adding to God's word is in Galatians 1. Paul writes to the Galatians. He had been there, planted a church there. He had explained to them the gospel. And these people came in named the Judaizers. Um, people, uh, uh, people, Jewish, Jewish people, Jewish teachers, and, and they came in, and and Paul is preaching this gospel of salvation by faith. Uh, we are justified by faith. We are saved by grace. It is a work of God, not a work of man. And these Judaizers come in, and they want to add to the gospel. They want to tell the Galatian church that in order to be saved, that you have to undergo circumcision first. Circumcision was the sign in Israel of the of entrance into the old covenant. It, it was the sign that you were a Jew, mm-hmm. right? It was the outward sign that you were a Jew, um, and, and they they misunderstood what the gospel was. They they assumed that that they they tried adding to it by saying what you must do in order to be saved is you must first bring yourself into the old covenant by being circumcised. And then you can enter into the new covenant that comes, that co- that came with with the person of Jesus. Uh, you must first do that in order to be saved. And Paul writes very sternly against them. Mm-hmm. Um, he pronounces a curse on anyone who would try to add to the gospel, on anyone who would try to add works to the gospel. Paul's gospel that he clearly pronounces, he says over and over again in Galatians, um, in in Romans in Ephesians, in essentially all of his writing, that the gospel, the way that we're saved is by faith apart from works, and it is by grace apart from merit, right? So that no one may boast. There is no boasting in Paul's gospel. It is it is a gospel that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. And when people try to add to that gospel, Paul says, if anyone preaches to you a different gospel, let him be accursed, right? So, so adding to God's word is is something that is, is clearly prohibited. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say also, I mean, one example, this uh, happened all the way back at the beginning of time. Adam and Eve added to the commands of God. Um, essentially, the serpent came up and asked, did God really say you cannot eat or touch of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Uh, and and Eve accepted that and, be, well, we can't do, we can't even touch this. And that's not what God had commanded in the beginning. And uh, so even way back at the beginning of time, the first sin started with adding to or manipulating the commands of God, um, essentially putting man above God then, because we're becoming the definer then of what we should and shouldn't be doing. Yep, in, instead of understanding the word of God as it comes from God, uh, the tendency that we often have and that we see um in churches and other things is to seek to add to the scripture that's what the judaizers are doing in the gospel they want to add something or the pharisees want to add a man-made tradition and god commands against doing that right 
So first of all, we when we understand uh, the sufficiency of Scripture, um, we take into into account this this uh, command that we see over and over again throughout the Bible: do not add and do not take away to God's word. God's word is sufficient. Um, as as far as you know, God's word is sufficient um, for each stage of redemptive history as God has revealed it. Part of that, and part of the question of sufficiency for us today, is that this has bearing on whether or not uh, the canon is closed. Mm-hmm. Are we still getting revelation from God? Because there are some some people out there, some uh, some denominations that would affirm and, and teach that there are still prophetic messages of God coming to people, um, and, and people might have the capacity to speak the word of God. And it seems that the Bible very clearly rejects that idea we do that that idea does not arise from scripture um, but we also believe that's that scripture is is sufficient and that we have a sufficient canon and that the canon is closed right and when we when we look at the bible this becomes pretty clear first of all the bible is split into two testaments uh, essentially into two covenants old and new the old looks forward it, it points to christ it has a prophetic nature it's anticipatory of the salvation that god would bring and in the New Testament, the New Covenant, it clearly shows the fulfillment of that salvation. The things that the Old Testament points to are fulfilled in Christ, and they're being worked out in the church. Those those two those two covenants, those two testaments, form a complete whole, right? That there's not there's not an anticipatory or or future aspect that remains um, in the in the nature of Revelation. Obviously, we we look forward to the second coming of Christ. There's a future anticipatory part of it. Um, but the the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible, clearly gives us that picture. It gives us the final picture. It, it's an obvious end uh, to to the revelation of God and, and the canon. The book of Revelation points to and, and it ends with the final outcome of all things, of all things, the uncounted uncountable multitude from all tribes, tongues, and nations, praising God, praising the Lamb in heaven. It's a, it's a victory lap for the Messiah, basically. Um, and the saints of God reigning with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth, God making all things new. It points to what is clearly the final outworking of God's plan of redemptive history. Satan is, is, is thrown out. Um, all, all the, the people that belong to the kingdom of darkness, the people that reject Christ, um, join him in, in, in the lake of fire. The Bible teaches that pretty clearly. Uh, the book of Revelation, it, it completes the story. It resolves the anticipation. We, we know and we see clearly how the salvation of God comes to us, and we know the final outcome of that salvation. The, the book of Revelation is an obvious close to the canon. And further than that, there are, there are such deep parallels with the book of Genesis that, that it becomes, especially the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, that it becomes obvious that it's an, it's an undoing of, of the fall mm-hmm. and it's a fulfillment of the creation that God started, right? There are many parallels between the Garden of Eden and, and, Garden of Eden and the New Jerusalem. They, bo- they both have rivers running through them. They have the tree of life in them. You know Genesis three eight. Uh, you know God, God is seen as is walking in the midst of the garden. God is dwelling with with His creation. And in Revelation twenty one three, and at the end of the book, the promise is that God will dwell with His people. That it will be a, 
the temple of God, that that uh, there will be no more need for light anymore. The glory of God will give light to all that exists. In, in Revelation, we see that the curses of sin that enter at the fall of humanity, they are undone, they are reversed in the new heavens and the new earth. And the judgment against Satan that, that was that was pronounced in the garden is is complete and finalized. Genesis three, God God pronounces judgment against the serpent, um, and and He promises there there would be an offspring of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent, uh, that 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 He would undo what has been done. That is the first promise of the gospel that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and that judgment against Satan becomes complete in in the book of Revelation and in the future when God cast Satan and, and his evil angels, his evil army, into the lake of fire. So, so it becomes clear that, that the canon, from, from that it becomes clear that the canon, the words of God, are closed. We have a sufficient canon today. Everything that we need has been revealed to us. And further than that, we look at um, Hebrews 1, and we talked about this a little bit in the, in the end, but it, it talks about how Jesus is the greatest revelation of God. How could we expect more revelation from God or better revelation than the person of Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the divine Son of God? How could we expect more than that? <clears throat> and, and the last part of this, and this I, I bring this up because this is relevant today. Um, we, we see pretty clearly fr- from the pages of Scripture that the office of apostle has ceased to exist today. Mm-hmm. And that is something that there are some churches, there are some denominations that would reject that idea, uh, that, that would believe in apostolic succession, that there are still apostles today. And, and the unique the, the apostle was a unique office in the church, right? Mm-hmm. You know, essentially the apostle had the ability to speak or to write and for it, for it to be the very words of God, right? When the apostle writes, when Paul writes his letters, it's understood that this is God's word, that this apostle has the divine authority from God, that when he writes, when he speaks, he's speaking the word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And, and what we're saying now, and the Bible teaches clearly, is that that, that office doesn't exist today anymore. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about how God centers his revelation around major redemptive historical events, um, the, the person and work of Jesus Christ, and what immediately followed that was much writing of scripture that was that was 2000 years ago um ephesians 2 talks about talks about how the church will be built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and that's what's been going on for the last 2000 years jesus is building his church on their word right and you know jude 3 talks about what our job really is is to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints so when we look at the bible and we look at the office of apostle you know, the first place we really want to look um, is is the qualifications that were necessary to be an apostle. And these are listed in, 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 in the Bible. In the book of Acts, the book of Acts opens with the apostles and they're making a decision. Um, Judas, who was one of the twelve, betrayed Jesus uh, and was, was no longer an apostle or part of the group. Um, so, so they were going to add another apostle to the group that, in order that they may have the number 12 that has a typological significance. Um, but in Acts 1, and really in verse, in verse 22, it, it says that they're gonna, they need to appoint another apostle. 
And it says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So part of the qualifications of being an apostle was that you had to be there for Jesus' ministry from his baptism until his ascension. You had to be a witness of the resurrected Jesus. Mm -hmm. That is, I mean, clearly that immediately disqualifies many today who would claim to be apostles. Everybody. Everybody. Mm -hmm. I I said many, didn't I? Yeah, Mm -hmm. that would disqualify everybody. Um, That is the first qualification. The second was a direct call and a commissioning by Jesus. We read in we read in the in the Gospels. Jesus specifically picks these these twelve apostles. He commissions them. He sends them out. And even in this choosing in Acts one, these the apostles don't decide for themselves who will take Judas's place, but they cast lots. Uh, they put it in the hands of the Lord, and the Lord decides in that way who would be the next apostle. It includes a specific commissioning from God, and. In Paul's letters, we see this pretty clearly. Paul, essentially, the way he opens every single one of his letters, we see this idea. It, it involves a specific commissioning and a specific calling from God. Romans 1, 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Mm-hmm. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul clearly understands what it means to be apostles, to be called. 1 Corinthians 1. This is literally just going in order through Paul's letters. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And, and in Galatians, Paul defends his apostolic authority and he talks about the specific commissioning of Jesus and appointing of him as an apostle. So with that, it becomes abundantly clear to us today that the office of apostle has ceased that the that the scriptures are sufficient in giving us the complete revelation of god that we need there's not something more that we should expect and there's not something more that we need from god right joshua you want to uh i'm just thinking of uh second timothy two fifteen. i think it is <coughs> when um Paul is talking to Timothy, writing to Timothy, um, and and a lot of what he's doing in those letters is uh, kind of exhorting Timothy to preach the word, teach it, and also to set up men in the church as elders. And one of the primary tasks uh, that I'm, I'm thinking of in this verse is to rightly divide the word of truth. And so the interesting thing about this is even as Paul is talking and, and, and kind of um, explaining what this office of eldership is, uh, there's nowhere in there that talks about make sure you're uh, speaking the specifically revealed revelation of God to you, to your congregation. Instead, it's rightly divide the word of truth that is here in the scriptures. Um, so I was just thinking of that as you were talking about this too, Jackson. Yeah, yeah, we see that like clearly being laid out in the New Testament, and and as as the gospel progresses, but but the command to Timothy to Titus is to raise up faithful men who, in, in Titus it says, who hold firm to the trustworthy mm-hmm. word as taught. 
Mm-hmm. And Ephesians 2, like we talked about, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and their, and their message. The apostolic witness about Christ forms the foundation of the church. And this is important that we understand and have the right canon then, right? Because we're going to be preaching and teaching from the time that the canon has been uh, complete. That's what we have to be, to essentially be teaching and preaching from. So it's important that we have the right, <laughs> the right canon or else we're going to be teaching things and adding and preaching things that have been added to the word of God. Yeah. Um, and, and with that, even like we, we see the, you know, fr- from those passages we went through, like we see that that, that is specifically commanded against. Mm-hmm. Like that is something that is specifically commanded yeah. against. Okay, so uh, I think I think you know that that establishes a bit of of this doctrine, um, the sufficiency of Scripture. We want to talk about some implications of that. Uh, and and first of all, and we talked about this a bit last week too, but the Bible af- affirms some other things really clearly. Um, we kind of talked about this in our last episode, but the Bible, the Bible teaches Paul, Paul in his writing, uh, and in other places teaches that the Word of God, the revealed Word of God, um, recorded for us in the Bible, is sufficient for salvation. It is sufficient for salvation. That the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture includes the idea that the Bible is sufficient for salvation for us. So, Second Timothy three sixteen, we looked at that. Last time, actually, that's 2 Timothy 3.15. Paul is, is, is writing to Timothy. Uh, he says, actually, I'm going to go back to verse 14. It says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The sacred writings, the scriptures, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. The Bible gives us sufficient, s- the word of God is sufficient to bring salvation. It's sufficient to bring salvation. First Peter 2, or actually First Peter 1, gives us another good example of this. Um, looking at First Peter 1, starting in, starting in, in verse 22. Uh, Peter says, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, Verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And he quotes Isaiah, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word, Peter says, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. This word is the good news that was preached to you. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. You have been born again. It is through the scriptures that, that a person is, is born again, that a person receives salvation in Christ. Jesus in John 3 says, if anyone is to see the kingdom of heaven, he must be born again by the spirit. It, it is through the, the living and active word of God that the sinner who is, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, who is dead in transgressions and in sins is made alive in Christ. It is through God's word, as Paul says in, in in Colossians, that we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness 
to the kingdom of the beloved son. It is through God's word, as Paul says, that we are justified by faith, that we stand in grace, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that we who were slaves of sin have now become slaves of righteousness. We are born again, given a, a new heart, a new spirit. The heart of stone is removed. The heart of flesh is given from God. And he does it through his word. Peter says, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. It is the word of God that brings salvation. It is studying the word of God. It's knowing the word of God. And so the, so the Bible, as we talk about it, is, is sufficient for salvation. Mm-hmm. The Bible is sufficient for salvation. Another thing, the, the Bible teaches that the that that it is sufficient for righteousness. It is sufficient in 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 helping us to obey God's word. Uh I'm trying to think is it 2 Timothy 3:16 mm-hmm. or did I put the wrong verse in there? I think it is. Okay, 2 Timothy 3:16. So this is right after 2 Timothy 3.15. It says, uh, the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation for f- um, for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Then, then Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The scriptures are what make us complete for every good work. We need to know what God commands us to do in scripture. We need to obey it. We need to follow it. If God does not command it in scripture, then it's not something that we're obligated to obey. The scriptures are able to make us are able to make us complete and equipped for every good work. They're able to, able to train us in righteousness for they're useful for teaching, reproof, correction. You know, think about again the example from Mark seven when the Pharisees tried to add mm-hmm. this law uh, and tried to enforce it on people and they were rebuked by Jesus. If God does not command it, then it's not something that we're obligated to obey. It's not something we're obligated to obey. That the scriptures are sufficient for training in righteousness, for making the man of God complete and equipping him for every good work. If God wants us to do something, if God wants us to do something, then it's in his word. Mm-hmm. If he wants us to, to, to live a certain way or, or, if, or if we're presented with a situation and certain circumstances and he wants us to act a certain way, we do not need some prophetic revelation from God. We do not need to hear privately the voice of god it's in his word Mm -hmm. it's revealed in his scriptures the scriptures are sufficient for righteousness and understanding how to obey god and understanding how to know his will we don't we don't you know there's this there's a lot out there you know christian books and 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 other things and a lot of ideas about how what does it take to hear god's voice Mm. What does it take to hear God's voice? Is there prophetic revelation that God is giving? Is God going to speak something specifically to me? And yet God's word says that in the scriptures, in the scriptures, the man of God is made complete and equipped for every good work. 
He's made complete and equipped for every good work. If you want to hear God's voice, open your Bible. Mm-hmm. Really simple. Mm-hmm. If you want to, <laughs> I think Justin Peters says this, yeah, but he yeah. says, if you want to hear it out loud, then read it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to hear God's voice, open your Bible. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think there's a few just more implications of this we want to touch on. Uh, first of all, what this means there is nothing else that is on par with Scripture. Mm-hmm. The authority of Scripture, that attribute also ties into this, but there's nothing else that is on par with Scripture. Scripture is sufficient. You know, y- you think of th- the Mormon church, the church of the Latter-day Saints. The Book of Mormon is not on par with Scripture. Mm-hmm. Scripture is sufficient in itself. Joseph Smith and his prophetic revelation from, from the angel Mordecai <laughs> That that's against what the Bible clearly teaches. Mm-hmm. There's nothing else on par with Scripture. We don't need the Book of Mormon. We don't need the Apocrypha. Another thing about the Book of Mormon is, if you watch Jeff Durbin, he will talk about <coughs> uh, one of the things Scripture says about prophets is if anything they say doesn't come true, they are a false prophet. And I don't know the specific things. If you want to go and look at Jeff Durbin talking to Mormons and he talks about how um, I'm blanking on his name now. What was his name again? Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith. Some of the prophecies or things that he prophesied about said didn't come true. And in fact, all of his revelation is anti-gospel. And this is what qualifies him as a false prophet. Yeah. yeah. So so that that that's even a an internal test from scripture. God says, How do you how this is how you will know who a false prophet is? If they say something and it doesn't come true. Mm-hmm. And further than that, if they say something that contradicts the word of God and the, the clearly revealed scriptures, the canon that God has given, mm-hmm. then it becomes obvious that, that person is also not a prophet. And this is this is such a big deal to God that <coughs> the punishment then for false prophets was to kill them. Yeah. They are to die yep. because they have committed a heinous crime yep. against God. Yep. Uh, the the law in Israel was a, if a false prophet was found that that same prophet would would, would be put to death. Mm-hmm. This is a heinous heinous thing to to claim something to be the word of God that is not to add mm-hmm. to the commands of God. That's why John at the end of Revelation says if anyone adds to this and the curses of this book will be added to them. This is a serious thing. Mm-hmm. So the Book of Mormon not scripture, not on par with scripture. Scripture is sufficient. The Apocrypha. Mm-hmm. We talked about that a lot mm-hmm. two episodes ago. Yep. I, it is clear that the Apocrypha is not part of, of, of the canon. It is not God's word. Mm-hmm. It was never received that way. It was never intended to be. It is not God's word. When you add the Apocrypha and you call it God's word, that's committing a heinous mm-hmm. sin. And and when you take doctrines from that, and when you teach them as divinely authoritative, um, and when you add things to the gospel, Paul in, in Galatians six he says, if anyone preaches to you a different gospel, let him be accursed. Mm-hmm. Let him be accursed. And that was simply adding the requirement of coming into the old covenant first through circumcision before getting into the new covenant. Mm-hmm. And Paul says, if anyone adds to this gospel, let him be accursed. So it's not the Book of Mormon. Not the Apocrypha. These are not on par with Scripture. The culture that we live in is not on par with Scripture. The mm-hmm. church does not have ability to override Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, our feelings 
This is a hard one. This is the hardest thing for us. Our feelings do not override what God has divinely and authoritatively said. Mm-hmm. That is the, maybe the hardest one for us. Mm-hmm. The way that we feel doesn't override the divine truth of God. Jeremiah seventeen nine says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? Our feelings do not override the divine authority that the scriptures have. Mm-hmm. The scriptures teach us truth. They teach us salvation. They teach us the things of God. They equip us to be made complete, um, to be ready for every good work. It is the scriptures. They reveal di- divine truth. If we are to have knowledge, if we are to have any wisdom, you know, Proverbs 1, seven: the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Mm-hmm. We can't rely solely on the way we feel about things. We need objective divine truth. The scriptures are sufficient for, for all of what we need. We don't need to go outside the Bible, and this as well, we don't need to go outside the Bible to resolve certain issues. You know, we have we have issues in the church sometimes. You know, we have questions that we're trying to answer. How do we make people love Jesus? How do we attract people mm-hmm. to Christ? What do we do? Do we get <coughs> smoke smoke machines and, and, and fancy <coughs> preachers and we get really good music? Do we turn our church into a concert? Mm-hmm. Or... Do we preach the gospel Mm -hmm. like Paul says to do? Paul says the gospel is the power of salvation. Peter says that you have been born again through the living word of God, Mm -hmm. imperishable seed. The Bible teaches clearly that it is not methods and tactics and and smoke machines and concerts uh, that save people. It's the gospel. Mm -hmm. It's the word of God. And it's not only that... The gospel is not only a thing that saves people, but that draws them to Christ. We don't, and it's we're not saying it's wrong to uh, dr- uh, take some maybe more entrepreneurial steps to bring people into the church, or or to bring them to places where they're going to hear the gospel preached. There's not something wrong with that. What we are saying is that we should not have that as the primary marker of how we're going to bring people into the church. We need to faithfully preach the word of God. You were just telling me, who is that guy you were just telling me who had like a boisterous uh, voice? George Whitfield. George Whitfield. He yeah. would go into the public square and he would just start preaching the Bible and thousands of people would gather. Like it is the content that we preach, not the delivery primarily. And this is true. You can look at First Corinthians and Second Corinthians. Paul says this. He didn't come as an orator who had these great things, he actually came as weak, as yeah. sick, and he preached the word. He said, I I was determined to know nothing mm-hmm. among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Mm-hmm. I know nothing else. Mm-hmm. That's it. I know a crucified Christ, mm-hmm. and that's what I come with. Yep. And, and that had the power of God for salvation, and that is, I mean, we look around today and we see a Christian church that spans the globe. And it starts mm-hmm. with a guy, you know, the apostles in Jerusalem and a guy named Paul and others who came with nothing but a crucified Christ. Mm-hmm. That's it. A crucified Christ. That's the message that saves. That's the, the message upon which Christ will build his church. Mm-hmm. And that it's the gospel that has the power of salvation. So when we consider or when we come to certain issues and, and we want to resolve problems or 
or we want to know how, how the church should act, what the church should be structured, how should we draw people to Christ. We don't need to look to worldly methods. We don't need to look for look at secular methodology. Mm-hmm. We don't need to look at that. The Bible is sufficient. If the Bible speaks on something, it is divine truth, and that's what we need to follow and understand. And this has a lot of relevance for us today. This has mm-hmm. so much relevance. The, the, the Word of God is, is sufficient for, for teaching us how to handle all things. And so there's some issues that specifically have ar- arisen today uh, that are extremely problematic in the church, the visible church, right? right. The, all, all the people who claim the name of Christianity. I, you know, we're, I'm going to make an argument. There's a difference between actual Christians mm-hmm. and people who claim to be Christians. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Paul says, if you do not have the spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Christ. Mm-hmm. Belonging to Christ, that's a, a definition of what it means to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. We're G- called to examine and test ourselves to see if yeah. we are in the faith. Yep. Jesus says, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord. Mm-hmm. Or he's, yeah, he says, not not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Mm-hmm. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who professes to be a Christian and professes Jesus Christ as Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are Jesus' words, not mine. That's Matthew seven twenty one. So when we look at issues and, and how the church is handling issues that, pr- that are that are popping up today for 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 example the, the probably the most prominent one in our day mm-hmm. is the issue of sexuality and the issue of gender mm-hmm. right and, and and the church is forced to deal with this and what many churches um calling themselves christians have done is they have well to put to put it simply they've said this the bible the Bible is wrong, or or this was a, a a cultural stance that the Bible took. It's not relevant for us today. Um, the culture, our feelings, that's what's more important. We're gonna decide how to how to how to view and how to look at homosexuality, um, the transgender movement, the LGBTQ movement. We're gonna not look at what the Bible says. We're going to look at what the culture says and the what, what our feelings say. Mm-hmm. And so they go against what the Bible plainly teaches and, and they affirm these things. Um, you know, uh, there's there's a church here in Moorhead. I've driven by it a few times. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have a pride flag outside uh, posted on their, <coughs> on their on the wall of their church that says God is still speaking on a pride flag. Right, it says God is still speaking now. In this in this episode, we've been talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. We've been talking about mm-hmm. the closed canon. How, in order to know the will of God, the only thing we have to do is to open our Bibles, and we have the Word of God. Um, we we would say that God is still speaking, but He speaks through His Word. Mm-hmm. God God speaks through His Word, um, and and as far as we we deal with this issue of homosexuality and and transgenderism and and, and those things. Um, first of all, what, what we do is we must remain faithful to what the Bible teaches. Um, and, and what the Bible teaches, one, is that homosexuality, transgenderism, is is a sin against God, mm-hmm. right? It's 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 clear that it's a sin against God. Uh, Leviticus Leviticus eighteen says a man who lies with another man that is that is an abomination. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> but what we clearly what what the Bible clearly teaches is that there is well, first of all, it teaches that all of us are sinners, that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, and, and the same path is open to the same sex-attracted person that is open to the 
opposite sex attracted person. The same path to God is through faith in Christ, repentance of sin, spiritual transformation by the Spirit of God, new heart, new spirit, born again, made alive in Christ, transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Mm. It's the same route. For the heterosexual person, the, the call is to repent of your sin. Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Deny yourself. It's the same call. We don't say that sin is not sin. We call sin, sin. We're commanded to. The word of God calls sin, sin. But it offers a message of grace and a message of hope to all who would trust in Christ for their salvation, to all who repent of their sin. Mm. It's the same way. It, it doesn't matter the background. It, it doesn't matter the the homosexual. First Corinthians 6, Paul explicitly says, along with, with many other words, I'm actually going to turn there because I think this is important. Um, but, but Paul says, I got to find it here. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is important. This next verse is the important one. None of those people will inherit the kingdom of God. But here's what Paul says in verse 11. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. He goes on. But you were washed. Mm. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of <coughs> our God. Such were some of you. The LGBTQ movement says that your identity is your sexual orientation mm -hmm. and that it's your gender that you may choose what that, is, what that may be. But in the gospel, there is a, a change of identity that happens. Paul says, such were some of you, but you are something else now. Mm -hmm. You have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Mm. There, There is a shift in the identity of any person that comes mm. to Christ. Any person. Paul says we were all dead in sins and transgressions in which we once walked, but God made us alive. Mm -hmm. But God made us alive. Ezekiel 36, he took our heart of stone and gave us heart of flesh and put his spirit within us. For all people, the call of the gospel is to leave behind your sin, to cling to Christ, mm -hmm. to repent of your sin, and to follow Christ. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Colossians 3, he says, we put off the old self, and we put on the new self, which is being renewed day by day. He says that any man who is in Christ is a new creation. That is some hope for us. Mm -hmm. That is some hope for us. We are not stuck in our sin. We are not stuck in our, in our identity, unable ever to change. But the, gof the gospel offers us hope uh, of, of a new identity in Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think too, like 
we know that this is a sensitive topic. Uh, we're not just throwing biblical truths out there to say, hey, repent and turn because you should. Well, one thing, we don't think people should just for doing its sake. We think it's a blessing to live according to God's ways and commandments. Uh, and But we also want to recognize for our listeners, there's probably some of you who may identify or uh, struggle with same-sex attraction. Um, and if not you personally, there are probably people in your life whom are family members, friends, who you care deeply about who, who may identify as such. I know I have people in mind right now for myself, um, but we want you to know that uh, all people are welcome to repent. All people are welcomed and called to a better way of life in Christ. The gospel is the good news for those struggling with this sin. And we're not, we're, one thing we, we would never affirm is that the sin of homosexuality is worse than any other sin. That is not what the scripture teaches. All sin is a heinous crime against God. Homosexuality is not the worst sin out there. It's not worse than heterosexual uh, premarital sex. Well, it's at least, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a sin against God. Mm-hmm. It, all sin, the wages of sin is death. Mm-hmm. If you violated a single law, then you are a lawbreaker, mm-hmm. right? You are guilty. Yeah. I think I think it's Christ who says if you've broken one law, you it's as if, you, or maybe it's Paul who says I that. I think it's in James. Is it? Maybe James. So. Yeah. If you mm-hmm. break one law, you, it, is a, it is as if you have broken the whole law. Um, there may be, like, sexual sin, Paul talks about this, has an interesting aspect to it because it has, uh, you're sinning against your own body is what Paul says. And there's maybe some more physical consequences to that sin than maybe... Um, some others. Yeah, it's a dis- it's a destructive sin as mm-hmm. well. It's a really destructive sin. Yep. <coughs> so we just want to say, like, we know this is a sensitive topic. Uh, we know that to wrestle through these things to, not only with homosexuality, but I think especially with it, because the culture is saying your identity is defined by your sexuality. And so a lot of the times, th- why this topic is so sensitive, and if you want a good book to read... There's a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Day Self. I think it's by a guy named Carl Truman. He also wrote a more condensed version, um, which yeah, probably read, read be the more better. Condensed one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I started his uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Day Self. <coughs> it's very academic, but it explains how we've gotten to the point. Basically, the premise of the book. <coughs> he asks the question: How has this sentence become coherent? I feel like a man living in a woman's body. How have we gotten to this point? Um, But the main thing I'm trying to say is this is one of the reasons why this is so sensitive. This topic is, is because the culture has and is telling us over and over again that we are defined primarily by our sexual orientation. And that that is bad news. And the scripture could not teach something further away from that. Our primary our identity is that we are made in the image of God and also that we can have salvation, relationship, eternal life through Christ and in Christ. Uh, and this is a much, much better news uh, than what the culture has to say by just accept. 
Accept who you are, live in your sin, and you'll have a good life. Yeah. Um, I mean, for for the Christian, you know, the Bible uses this term a lot. The New Testament uses this term a lot. um, To be in Christ. Mm -hmm. To be in Christ. Right, to be Christian, yep, to be Christian, to be saved. My identity when I'm in Christ, one, it's declared by God. Hmm. God has said that for those in Christ, that they are loved by God, adopted by God into His family, that they are temples of God with the Spirit of God dwelling in them, that God gives them eternal life, that He is conforming them to the image of His Son, that they have been made alive they are citizens of the kingdom of God, that they are children of God. That is the identity of the Christian. What an identity to have. Mm-hmm. What an identity to have, an identity that is declared by God to be true. And so so I think we want to wrap this up. Yep. Um, as we talk about this, the sufficiency of Scripture, the scripture is, is sufficient to teach us all the things that we need to know. Salvation, all, all it equips us and makes us complete for every good work. We don't need to look outside the scripture to understand things. We talked about this too. The scripture is our foundation for all knowledge and truth. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The last point we want to make with this is, and, and this is an important one, whatever it is that the scriptures emphasize, whatever it is they put the most emphasis on, that they teach on the most and, and most clearly, that is what we should also emphasize. Hmm. It is the historic, um, it is the historic method of of cults, strange cults, to take very obscure things and way overemphasize them. Yeah, like we we talk about Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, um, all all of the religious cults that have come throughout history. They take something obscure, and they just beat it like a dead horse mm-hmm. and then that's it. it it becomes just this weird obscure thing mm-hmm. so we need to be careful that whatever the scriptures emphasize that that's also what we emphasize whatever they talk about the most that that's also what we talk about the most mm-hmm. right uh, the scriptures are made that way they're intended to give us the necessary truths that we need the things concerning salvation um, the things concerning godly living the things concerning how we can know the will of god and be obedient to the will of God. So I think that is going to wrap us up for this episode. Uh, like I said, I'm not sure when we are uh, going to be able to put out another episode. We kind of have a, a couple of busy weeks coming up, um, but but hopefully we'll we'll find some time after that. And where we want to jump into, you know, we've established this foundation of what is the Bible, what are the characteristics of the Bible. The Bible is as the foundation for all knowledge and truth. And now we want to talk a little bit about how to read the Bible, how to mm-hmm. study the Bible. So we look forward to doing that. Hopefully uh, you guys um, enjoyed this episode and you would come back and listen in a couple weeks when we get another one out. Mm-hmm. Thanks, guys. God bless.